0: This episode is brought to you by Paraswap, the leading aggregator to find best prices across various DEXs. You'll hear more about them later in the show. Hey everyone, quick reminder, nothing said on Empire is a recommendation to buy or sell securities or tokens. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and any views expressed by anyone on the show are solely our opinions, not financial advice. Santiago and I and our guests may hold positions in the companies, funds or projects discussed. Now, let's get into the show. All right, everyone. Another special episode of Empire. Uh, We are missed by uh, our dear friend Santiago today. Santi's flight got Canceled, so he was not able to make it back to his recording studio. So I will have to uh, bear the brunt of this one, hold down the fort, uh, and thankfully I'm joined by not one but two DeFi wizards today. Uh, starting up, we got Tarun Chitra from uh, Gauntlet, founder of Gauntlet, also a partner at Robot Ventures. Um, previously, it was at I think Vadic uh, and De Shaw uh, on the quant side of things, T- uh, and then also Tom Schmidt. Uh, who was on the product team at Zero X before uh, joining Dragonfly, where he uh, works with some of our friends uh, over there uh, on the investing team. So Tom, Tarun, welcome to Empire, guys.
1: Hey, what's up? Hey, thanks for having us.
0: Of course, of course. Cool. So I think uh, let's start... I want to start, kind of start with like frameworks. And it's been a little bit of a crazy couple of weeks in crypto. Tom, you come from this like crypto investing background. You're usually like 18 to 24 months ahead of the curve, trying to figure out where the space is going. Tarun, you kind of come more from the quant side of things, battle testing like tokenomics, uh, schemas, and things like that. I kind of want to start with just frameworks for how you're each viewing the space today, right? So we're recording this on January 31st, 2022. What is uh, Tarun, I think let's start with you. What is your crypto framework for just like where we're at uh, and where we're going in, in 2022, considering everything that's happened so far this year already?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think hopefully we had a, a healthy correction um, that sort of, uh, you know, I, I think like it's very easy in this space to get have things be overheated. Um, and then you kind of end up with like very reflexive products being built that don't actually like provide a lot of like user value and in the bear markets. And I mean, historically, bear market means many different things in crypto, but let's just say in, in some con- conception of a bear market, most of the biggest innovations that like persisted were made. Right. So like the bear market last time brought us a lot of the big NFT games like Axie. It brought us Uniswap, brought us compound, brought us new chains. Um, and I think like in some ways, each correction is actually really healthy for uh, new technology. At this point, it'll probably be things probably, you know, from my investment hat side, I, I definitely would say most of what I've really been looking at is like sort of infrastructure for, for NFTs and um, zero knowledge proof related things. Um, so I, I think like that. That to me is most top of mind. I, I feel like, you know, the mo- most amazing thing is all the DeFi coins are down, but like all the DeFi protocols are still like cl- not that far from record TVLs. So it should kind of say it kind of there 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 might be some sort of like you know activist investings type of stuff I, f- I foresee in the next year outside yeah. of you know the failed spec of Danielle. <laughs>
0: Tom, what about you? What are you? Uh, what's what's kind of your framework for how you're positioning and just seeing seeing the entire industry right now?
1: Yeah, I think we also felt things were extremely overheated, you know, over over the past few months. But and I, I always pains me to say this because this is what every investor in a bubble says, but it really does feel very different this time. Um, you, you do look at uh, you know the usage of these of these protocols, as Tarun was saying. Um, you look at sort of the the utility that, that they're adding, as opposed to just being vaporware. You look at the types of investors that are coming into the space, like it just feels materially different. I mean, we were talking about the fact that like NFT profile pictures are now like a core feature on Twitter, absolutely insane, Uh, kind of unimaginable, you know, two years ago. The hype is real to an extent Um, that said, there's, there's always a few layers of additional hype on top of whatever reality is in crypto. And so you have to kind of have to be prepared for that. But um, I think increasingly um, it it feels like we're sort of breaking out of a a lot of the core you know the the basics and the core primitives and, and building into sort of um, new layers of the stack that in my mind are maybe a little bit more exciting. Um, I think you know, one area that I'm actually really excited about right now is sort of the whole um, DAO tooling plus like crowdfunding space. Um, I think sometimes you sort of see this moment in, in crypto where it's like one team figures out um, maybe very roughly a very core concept. This was sort of like compound with liquidity mining. You know, someone sort of figures one thing out and maybe they don't appreciate it at the time but it sort of becomes like a, a new core mechanism. And I feel like Constitution DAO sort of tapped into some spark um, when people realized that you could use this this technology to do uh, global uh, uh, decentralized capital formation. And I think as soon as people figure out a way to repeat that process, we're going to see just an incredible explosion again, the same way we kind of have for for those other two categories. So that's an area I'm super bullish on, and I just see a lot of great teams entering the space. and. Just an incredible amount of talent coming into the space as well. Um, it's very, very uh, you know, impressive to see.
0: Yeah. yeah. All right. One of the reasons I want to bring both you guys together is to get your guys' take on kind of the current tokenomics stuff. And Tom, I want to bring you on because when all this mm. kind of VE curve stuff was going on, you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa like yeah. stop. Like let's, let me call out some of the bullshit that I think I see going on. And Tarun, obviously, like you, you live in some of this stuff day to day. I think everyone right now is thinking like, you know, everyone was thinking like, okay, VE is like the future. And then like, okay, some of these Ponsonomics things are like the smartest thing ever created. And, and now maybe obviously with this kind of like frog nation debacle that we saw last week, maybe it's uh, not. And like Olympus DAO and Wonderland, all that kind of stuff getting hit pretty hard, right? So it feels like this could be kind of a pivotal moment um, where the pendulum swings back. And what I mean by this is in DeFi, the kind of beginning of the cycle, the only DeFi projects that exist are these VC-backed, high-quality teams, right? Compound, Aave, Uni, uh, Maker, right? And they were like these VC-backed projects that kind of came out of like 2019, 2018, 2019. And the VCs funded them and, and, and got them through to launch. And they became the tier what we know as, a, of, as the Tier 1 DeFi projects. And then Yearn and Sushi came along and kind of pioneered this like, fair launch community driven project playbook and then olympus dow obviously kind of expanded on that um but then what you got is uh lower quality teams came in vc start kind of came like pouring in even more you started to see more like high fully diluted value like low float retail gets dumped on by the time of the unlock uh, narrative around VC-backed projects starts changing. Uh, but this Zero Exifu episode, to me, feels like it could be a huge shock to the system in terms of trust, right? Where now you've got this, like, the community felt like trust was kind of breached by these exploitative VCs last year, but hey, maybe actually the VCs are really helpful for doing due diligence. And now some of these, like, anonymous folks running these these communities, maybe it doesn't seem as good you guys agree with that? Do you guys think this could be kind of this pivotal moment? Or am I overreacting here?
2: I I, I guess I think one thing that's important to remember is that the label VC has uh, grown in a manner that I think is unsustainable. Like, if I just start calling anyone who has any capital to deploy a VC, then like that kind of describes the scenario. I think what really happened a lot in 2021 was a lot of trading firms realized that by rebranding as VCs, they were able to basically capture a lot more upside and also like negotiate shorter lockups because there were tons of new founders who were just like, I want to launch a token. And there tons of trading firms who are like, I know how to front run the founders and the team. And so like we had this very weird like adverse selection problem of like the shittiest founders, no offense. Uh really were just like taking horrible terms from a lot of trading firms. Um, and the trading firms would do something where they give them like $100 million valuation, have a three-month lockup, and then, you know, obviously, would just dump right in front of everyone. Uh, and I think that got extended to the Anon farms in a lot of ways. Like that kind of behavior and kind of like adverse selection cost and like, hey, we're just going to copy some other protocol, change a couple lines, bolt in a new token, like something that was like a hackathon project. Uh, and like we're gonna launch it and raise you know fifty million dollars that gets dumped as soon as possible. uh that kind of deleterious adverse selection you know I wouldn't consider that traditionally something venture capital normally does there's adverse selection in every type of finance, right like no matter what, but it's not this type of adverse selection. I think the problem is that you know most people started just calling everyone v c s who had more than a certain amount of money and and i i don't think that's uh that's maybe that realization is finally coming true but i i maybe this is a pivotal moment but i i think the bigger pivotal moment is just like the asset prices crashed uh, i think people realize that you know you have to discriminate a little bit on like what different types of investors are what their duration expectations are stuff like that everybody's an
0: angel when the prices are going up right
1: <laughs> yeah yeah um that's how you get your community um i mean i think Maybe just to double click on this, I think Turn touched a very good point, and maybe for listeners, like venture capital is kind of a niche asset class. It's a very specific kind of fund. Um, it's a closed-ended fund. Um, you're you're holding uh, you know investments for a you know seven year plus time horizon, generally ten. Um, and so when you're doing an investment, it's like getting married, right? It's like you know we have a very long lockup, we have a very long vesting schedule. We're we're in this you know till death do us part, and um, it's very very different than I think you know how people generally. As an individual, that's not really how you, you generally do investments, um, especially in crypto. A lot of people are into trading and flipping and mining and like, um, and so you know, VC is not just that, but with more capital, it's like a very different style of investment than I think a lot of people are are used to. I think maybe, um, the you know, the point I I I feel is like I'm I'm maybe kind of like a tokenomics bear. Um, I think tokenomics are are kind of like like steroids or stimulants. It's like if you already have a good baseline then they can really sort of propel your growth and they, they can be used, you know, you can use a token well to sort of serve sort of your advantage to build them out or to, to promote traction. Um, but if, if your project's dead, you know uh, sticking someone full of a bunch of stimulants, isn't going to like bring them back to life. Like it's just, it's, you need something good to sort of build on top of. And I think that would, that's been my point around a lot of these projects. I think, you know, you bring up something like um, sushi, for example, and it's like s- sushi is not dying because the sushi tokenomics were not correct sushi is dying because uni v3 is such a better product than sushi um and so um you know i think my my sort of investment philosophy i'm not super um i guess like principled or thesis driven um i'm not like this this is kind of the way this should work or like oh we can rework the tokenomics in this way it's like i just want to invest in great teams building great products that i want to use that are solving a problem that i have or that someone i know has and so um if you're not solving if you're not building a product that's solving a real problem which is hard it's a lot harder to um, you know, do good product development than it is to, you know, introduce some, you know, wacky token staking thing. Um, then yeah, I, you know, it's, 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 it's hard and scary, but, um, that's kind of the way you build a great sustaining protocol and project. I think it, it, that's sort of emblematic of, of the most successful, you know, project in the space.
2: I, I I would, I would also add one thing, which is, um, yes. One interesting thing is, is that sushi, however, is. It's actually still doing reasonably well, like from a pure DEX metrics standpoint. And part of the reason for that is that it's it's actually competing with a different market than Univ3, right? Univ3 sucks for new projects, slow market cap, and like small, like kind of new token issuance that you need to incentivize somehow. And and it's actually much, much easier to do in Univ2 slash sushi. And uh I think the more crazy thing it, and this is why I mentioned activist investing in the beginning is that there are these protocols that are sort of the coolest thing about the space, right, is that these protocols, even when like the te- development team might not be there and abandoned, is still running. And if it fits a niche, they might actually have quite a bit of, of use case. I, I don't think it's just Sushi. I wouldn't necessarily just say like, hey, like they're the only ones. I, I think there's going to be a lot of this type of stuff um, happening. And I want to just go deeper into the activist investing stuff. So what do you mean by the activist stuff? Yeah, so there's two types of things, right? Like, so in, in in traditional markets, right, if you have an activist investor, you have this investor who slowly buys a bigger and bigger stake in the company. Uh, you know, usually they have like some, you know, kind of the same way that crypto governance has, like these kind of like quorum thresholds that are quite low. A lot of activist, a lot of you equities um, only require like, oh, you own five percent of the asset to like force a board meeting or force a vote on something. Um, and so, uh, you know, activist investors will buy up like whatever that percentage of stock is, try to force a vote to force out the CEO or to, call, to force a buyback or something that is gets voted on. Um, and then they they sort of like, you know, if they're successful at convincing people, then they basically now kind of have been able to change the company in some way. Activist uh, investing in in DeFi is going to be something similar of like. Aggregating a big position, uh, sort of writing the code for a governance proposal and for changes that you want to make, uh, and then convincing whoever's still a token holder to vote on it. And in general, I think a lot of these like tokenomics games that fail will likely lead to uh, kind of more activist investing. And this happens in normal finance too, right? It's like if I do way too many buybacks, And the company's like top line isn't growing. Uh, Eventually, there'll be someone who's like, like, you know, the Bill Ackman's of the world will be like, I think we need to like go in and stop buybacks or I think we need to go in and do X, Y or Z. And and there's no reason you can't do it here other than everyone who wants to be what what I've observed in crypto is that everyone who's from traditional finance who wants to do activist investing can't write any code. So there's no way they're going to actually be able to execute these things themselves and everyone who's like more of a like technical kind of investor who has like a development team or whatever they don't want to or don't know how to do kind don't want to like do the lobbying effort and stuff to do activist investing but this is the year i suspect like the non-technical kind of very traditional people like arca and like then the more technical funds who you know have big positions who might be kind of trying to do things uh you know maybe like jump Somewhere meet in the middle and we get like some type of like uh activist thing.
1: Yeah. I, I, I think I, I can see that in some scenarios. Like like Arca's been been pushing for like the Gnosis um treasury stuff, trying to get them to like you know use their treasury better or distribute. Um I think and I think we will see more activists investing, I agree with the Rune. But I think part of the problem is um there's such a low cost of capital, low threshold, low startup threshold in, in crypto that like if you really don't like the way a product is going you're almost more compensated or incentivized to start your own thing as opposed to trying to improve the existing product um and i think you know if you're like if you're smart and you're in crypto and you can write code um like nine times out of ten you're you you're better off starting a new project um and you know owning some of that token supply as opposed to like trying to buy in and improve you know the value of sushi um, you, you, know, it's, it's like, you're, it's, it's just sort of a pure math thing, um, because it's not like starting a brick and mortar business where there are all, you know, years and tens of millions of dollars in, in upstart, uh, uh, capital required. Um, it's literally just a, you know, a couple of days and a code fork, um, and a nice UI. And now you have your own competitor to whatever the thing is.
0: Do th- when in activists investing in, in traditional equities, like I, f- when I think about act- activist investing, you've got someone like Bill Ackman who comes in and actually tries to make the product. Better. Oh, I guess you could. Some folks do it differently, right? Some people just try to suck as much value out of the out of the company as possible. But in crypto, will the activist investors try to make the network more valuable by maybe either changing tokenomics or by making a better product, or will they purely try to uh, uh, focus on the financial holders and and just increase the price of the token?
1: I think it's probably some combination of both. I mean, in theory, right? The better the network does, the better the token does, and I think. Um, on a long enough time horizon that will be true. Um, I think the stuff that we've seen so far tends to be more about token price. Um, and I think that a lot of the the network, network improvement stuff um, is not really done by large shareholders. Like I think about um, like Getty um, at, at Grapefruit working on Compound and like, you know, he's not you know, the seed investor of Compound and, and owning 10% of the token supply. Um, he's just a guy uh, who obviously has a bunch of, you know, comp de- delegation, but like Um, It feels very different, feels more, uh, I I guess, you know, striving to make fundamental improvements to the protocol uh, versus trying to, you know, do some financial engineering on, on the price of the token.
0: When I think about kind of like if I'm making decisions at a protocol, like in a project, I'm kind of waiting, like uh, my, my emphasis and my focus on the product, my focus on the token and my focus on the community. So I think there's all this hype and like a lot of, uh, a lot of hype around like the token side of things right now. Right. And then there's, there's also a decent bit of like focus on the community. But when I think about projects that have won, uh, it's the folks who have served the users by focusing on the product. And, and again, I think that would tie back to what I was originally saying. I think there might be like pendulum swinging on community where maybe having this like cult like community is not actually a powerful moat, but like a red flag almost, and
1: like a point of risk. I think of it's sort of like a, like a Maslow's hierarchy, I, I mean, I do agree, like you need a good protocol, that is, you need a good product at the end of the day. If you don't have that, you, you know, I think part of the thesis initially with with some of these sort of, um, you know, meme projects or cult projects, or just or super highly, you know, reflexive projects was that, well, we build the community first, and we build up a token price, we build up a treasury, and we use that to then, you know, buy the talent and improve the product. And over time, we sort of like grow into the valuation in a sense. I think Chainlink was arguably one of the first where, you know, it's a fine product. It's a fine Oracle. Token is kind of whack, whatever. Um, but it sort of created this meme and this community around it. And now they have an incredible team. They have like RE Jewels on, on their team. And they have like an incredible... We just hired a researcher from Chainlink who's, who's you know, incredibly smart. And so, um, you know in a sense they're maybe like one of the few teams that's actually executed on it but everyone else so far has sort of failed on the second step which is the hardest part which is the fundamental part which is building a great product um and it's not necessarily something you can just throw money at um i think the community stuff i i i you know tend to agree but i think it maybe not so much as as building a cult but being just being loud about your product most most products Kind of die in silence, um, and if you don't start building up that that feedback loop and getting people actually using it, um, then you, you never even have a, have a shot at at becoming successful, at becoming that that tier one protocol. So, um, you know, you, it's not, I think, desirable to have an extreme cult, maybe you know, uh, on, on a frog nation level, but you do still need yeah you know, to be loud about what you're building in in the early days and and start to you know build a, that initial community and get people using it and not. Um, just sort of hope people are going to you know, show up and, and figure out how to how to use whatever it is that you're building.
0: Uh, Tarun, is there something that like when you work with founders, um, is there something that changes based on where we're at in the cycle? Where you're like, oh, it's a bull market, like let's over-optimize for X. Or it's like, oh, now we're in a bear bear market or like a down market. Uh, maybe we should like over-optimize for this or do or there's like option C where you're like, I don't give a damn what the Tokens and like what the market is telling me right now, like here's
2: how you should build something. I would say I don't I I don't have quite um something where it's like so market dependent as much as it's more dependent on like the person and their idea. Um and so like, you know, I think if I look at my investments over you know, our investments uh over the last six months. I would say that, you know, a lot of them were either existing teams that, like, existed, built their product before things got crazy and, like, were already kind of working in the space for a while. Um, Or they were kind of on the edge, right? They were, like, you know, for instance, like, like, Neon on Solana or, like... You know, something where it's like, hey, they're actually like doing something new that's like more like needed in like some ecosystem that doesn't have it. But there was way less of the like, hey, I'm gonna invest in like more clones uh because like there's a bull market and you'll get you'll be able to get out of like the five hundredth compound fork or whatever on AVAX. Um and so I think I think a lot of it has, yeah, has definitely focused on really kind of like finding people who've been around for a while because i think ethereum developers who actually have run products live who then moved to Solana, are like probably the the best capable developers and i think a lot of the new Solana devs came from not crypto and kind of tried to like apply their mindset from some other field and so missed seeing some of the holes of like what would happen under these edge case scenarios and i just think in a lot of cases it's just like there's a lot of maturity you learn from building a failed project um or like something like that and like i think that's something i i look for almost more than like hey right now this is hot and we'll work like digging into gauntlet for sector Ruin, like you guys have these i think what you guys do is you like battle test these uh yeah. So, so we kind of do sort of like monitoring and optimization for DeFi protocols. So we kind of do two types of things. One is risk management, which is, hey, like how, you know, each community has a sort of notion of like how much risk they want their protocol to take, like how much leverage it takes, things like that. And they also have a notion of um, how much revenue they want to make. Like, do, do they want to be more aggressive with sort of more, uh, you know, the liquid assets do they want it to like charge higher fees on these like assets and so we help monitor and optimize that and you know automatically submit governance proposals um and like make sort of analytics that people can use for that and the other is sort of related to what you're talking about which is incentive optimization of like how should you actually spend this to achieve you know some high level metric like you know if if i'm sushi like how much should i actually spend on each pool um to like reach, you know, kind of optimize like the amount of volume I get per unit of liquidity. And so we we really are focused on just like optimizing protocols uh, in different ways. You're, I mean, you're talking about these like... Empire is proud
0: to be supported by Paraswap. Paraswap is one of the leading DEX aggregators in crypto. Let's say you're booking a flight you would never go directly to an airline right you'd never go directly to united or delta you'd obviously go to google flights or expedia or kayak or booking.com That's what Paraswap does for DeFi. Paraswap, if you're watching on YouTube right now, you can see the platform. Paraswap makes swapping easier. It makes it faster. It makes it cheaper by aggregating more than 80 different DEXs. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, Uniswap, Sushi, Balancer, uh, Bancor, into one single interface. You can use Paraswap on ETH. Polygon, as you can see here, BSC, they recently launched Avalanche a few weeks ago. Pretty exciting. If you are a trader listening to this, you are losing money by not using Paraswap. And excitingly enough, if you're a company or a platform looking to access the swapping or the yield capabilities of DEXs, you can now use Paraswap's APIs to integrate into your platform to get the full power of the DEX aggregator into your platform. So head on over to paraswap.io. Again, if you're watching on YouTube, you can see how simple it is to use. Just plug in, let's say I wanna swap you know, 0.2 ETH, for usdt you can see how simple it is just plug that in right there and it aggregates over 80 different dexes so head on over to Paraswap, io to use the platform today all right let's get back to the show these developers who weren't around in 2017 and 2018 and 2019 now coming into crypto they didn't build on eth before like they're just going straight into solana one thing that happens in bear markets. And I look, I have no idea if we're in a bear market, but the prices are down like 50%. So one thing that happens when prices are down 50% is that things start to unravel. So, and, and, and and it happens in equities too, right? Like Bernie Madoff, uh, Bernie Madoff could have run that Ponzi scheme forever. If 2007, 2008 financial crisis didn't happen. That's why in 2009, Bernie Madoff got kind of uncovered and the same thing, I'm not saying things in, aren't in crypto or Ponzi's, but like things start to fall apart and unravel. Um, and we were talking about obviously like the frog nation stuff and wonderland and time. Like that's, that's one of the reasons, like something like that starts to happen. So Tarun, I think I'd go back to you could be just because of like your experience with gauntlet. What are some things that maybe folks aren't seeing in DeFi right now? Like what, what what are like the big risks to the system right now that that people aren't really looking at but you think they should be looking at?
2: Yeah, I mean I think the you know a lot of the you know the deleveraging was quite harsh in some places. <laughs> I think like I would say right now is actually pretty okay except you know maybe in like the most high risk types of protocols in in especially in Solana and uh, Avalanche and I I think in Solana it's just going to it's just more like you know the the dev team there's working really hard on this on getting this them to have a fee market, um, and and I think like once they have that it will be a lot more easy to reason about the safety in those systems um, than it is right now. But I think one place people are maybe underestimating their risk is um, in some of the on chain options protocols. I think like we did see like a huge deleveraging there, like a little more violent than I expected. Um, and I think a lot of these sort of on-chain derivatives protocols, there were some that did really well actually and some that didn't. And I think like the retrospective on those is is kind of interesting. Like when you compare, say like uh, you know, like a mango or a drift to each other, right? They had very different sort of net uh liquidation losses and, and, and stuff like that. So I, I guess the main 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 point is I think we the deleveraging has shown us which who the emperor with no clothes is to some extent.
1: I think a lot of products implicitly have an assumption that like number will always go up um, and there will always be a bid. Um, And obviously those things don't, don't tend to be true. Um, This one might, might, you know, annoy some people, but I I do feel that um, even AMMs are somewhat subject to this. People kind of forget this, that like um, UniV1 and UniV2 LPs were losing a lot of money um, in, um, sort of like 2019, 2020, because there wasn't enough volume to offset the IL. So, uh, you know, you just, you're you're bleeding out slowly over time, um, as your, as asset price drifts, but you don't have any volume on the AMM to sort of compensate for that. So I think of it a little bit like a hula hoop where it's like, you need the momentum to get going to sort of keep the thing running. And I don't necessarily think like we're going to enter a period where we'll have such low volume on these AMMs that, um, it will not be profitable for LPs. And I think LPs are getting more sophisticated over time. But there is certainly that risk that you enter a period where you sort of start, you know, um, circling down the drain where um, you, know, you don't have enough volume on the AMM to compensate the LPs and then LPs leave. And then you also don't have volume because you don't have liquidity and the thing just sort of you know, accelerates.
2: And, and to be fair, I, I do want to say that, like, you know, these lever- deleveraging spirals are, are, are common to everything. Like, I, I, I still want to stand by my favorite phrase, which is everything's a Ponzi scheme if you squint enough whether it's Google AdWords and the Ad Exchange, whether it's the fintech investors who want to shill Stripe and Bolt, whether it's you know long-ended en- long funds, everything does have to have this like kind of like start with this rapid growth that is like unclearly connected to the thing that's inside, right? And like even for a lot of big tech companies in the beginning when they're growing, they have the same kind of problem. They have these liquidity management problems uh, in their platforms. So marketplaces oftentimes will have kind of these... Secular events that like cause this huge crash or like all the Uber drivers suddenly turn their Uber off in some city and like now, you know, you have to pay a ton of incentives and the way you pay the incentives is you take like future revenue and pay it to the current, you know, current drivers, and then like later compensate people like once you've accrued enough, and like there's all this sort of stuff that goes on behind the scenes. And it's just that we don't call them kind of Ponzi-looking things because, like, some of them are sustainable. A lot of them aren't, right? Like, look at Evergrande. Look at like all of these like horrible corporate bond issuances. It's the same thing as as some of these underwater protocols. So, I guess I just want to point out that, like, you know, crypto just makes it very transparently a Ponzi, which is why everyone is a little bit, you know, always skittish and like, you know, has these kind of negative aftertones. But pretty much every investment vehicle has to have an or. Entity has to have th- these problems, and I think to Tom's point, the flywheel for a lot of traditional tech companies has been like sticky user growth. And one of the things that we haven't found in DeFi, or, uh, we kind of have in NFTs, but really non DeFi, is is like sticky users. Right? Users are are way more mercenary than uh, you know, like Facebook users posting pictures. Right? And so I think one interesting thing that we might also see this cycle is how Teams that are not like trying to just like make a quick buck, but who like want to build a really big product, um, you know, really work on figuring out how to make like users sticky uh, in, in a way that like is sustainable.
0: Tarun, it's like you're reading my mind. You laid up my next question nicely, which which, which is what I was going to say is I think there's a lot of uh analogies to be made between like early liquidity mining incentives and then like uber uh making it so all the ta- all the cab rides in new york are like four dollars free right now <laughs> seven seven years later it's like 35 dollars for the i'm like i swear this ride used to be four dollars um but the difference is that like Uber super sticky, right? So as soon as I take an Uber, I'm like, oh my God, this is freaking amazing. I'm never getting a yellow cap again. I'm taking an Uber forever. Uh, but the difference is like in liquidity mining incentives, it's like, oh, I'm going to hop into this pool. Oh, wait, now the incentives are lower. I'm jumping to the next pool and then I'm jumping to the next pool and I'm jumping to the next pool. And now I think what you're seeing is like, um, like VE, like the VE models are, are clearly what they're trying to do is make it so uh, these token holders are maybe incentivized to hold for longer periods of time instead of just like, uh, getting incentivized, getting the tokens, and then dumping. Now you've got the VE models. Uh, but it doesn't feel like, to me, like VE is like the final form of this. I think there's got to be a better way to, because again, VE is still so focused around the tokenomics. I don't think you can have a sticky product just be sticky because of the tokens, if that makes sense. So what it, what is the evolution of this? Like, where does this go? And how do, how do you make these things sticky?
2: I think for DeFi, it, it's going to be interesting. I'm not it's not totally clear. Like, at least for compound and Ave, it's kind of clear. Like, right, in Ave's case, it's like flash loans just completely dominated and helped stabilize a lot of DeFi. So, like, there's a ton of liquidity there because of that, right? And 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 for compound, it's it's sort of similar. It's like generally like a, a safe enough place for like fintech companies to feel comfortable putting their assets, right? And 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 they have these sort of more slow moving investors uh using their protocol versus kind of like the mercenary HFT people, which, you know, I think to some extent that 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 is very good to bootstrap with, but it, it's kind of, it, it's a double-edged sword, right? Like, it, it can all leave all at once. Um, I think the interesting thing about NFTs is, is that, and, and like, I, I'm not saying that this can't change, uh, but it has really been OpenSea's dominance in spite of like all of the people attacking them, in spite of all of these, like, everyone and their mom trying to make like, an NFT platform. Like, I feel like every time I meet a crypto person, I just hear a rumor that's like XYZ brand in the traditional fashion world is like making an NFT platform. Like, none of them are going to be OpenSea. Like, there's no way, right? Like, the, the wealth effect of OpenSea is actually quite strong. So, it's interesting that like NFTs do have the stickiness in a way that DeFi doesn't. And I don't know how that evolves. Tom probably has like, Tom is much more of the NFT. Giga Whale, so to speak, than I, I am, so oh, wow. I don't really know.
0: What what a claim, Tom? What a claim to fame right there.
2: Uh, at least you do a lot of NFT analytics, so I mean, <laughs> you're like you're you're watching fair that enough. market in a way I, I don't
1: really pay attention to. Fair enough, fair enough. By uh, the Giga Whale launch is coming out soon. It's a 10k limited you NFT, know, <laughs> so everyone go mint. Um, I mean, I think yeah, Opensea is just a testament to yeah the power of of network effects, especially in a mostly commoditized space um like you know i think maybe you were asking earlier about building in a bear market um, or different just, just what sort of advice do we offer companies and i think they they have many competitors in a commoditized space and then then it's like you know, there's not there's not a fifth place you know staking derivative that's like totally fine it's like you need to either be the largest and be everywhere or like um you you basically have nothing and so i think um, in, in those scenarios, it really behooves you to, to move super quickly and be number one um, because, in that case, success you know, begets success and, and failure begets, begets failure. Um, I think, you know, I, I guess in my mind, um, it, it is just kind of around um, building products that are providing services that people can't get elsewhere. I think Ribbon did actually a really good write-up when they did their first liquidity mind system. I think actually they did a really, really great job with a token in terms of, Structuring you know the airdrop correctly in terms of experimenting with liquidity mining and learning how it works and using that to inform the product decision. So many teams I meet, um, you know, on on the seed pitch deck, they're like, and then we're gonna spend you know fifteen percent of our, our token liquidity mining. It's like, well, how do you know that's the right amount? You know, how do you, what if what if it's too much? What if it's too little? Like, what if there's something else you can do with the, with the token? And so, you know, that's not the way a normal company works. They're not like we're going to spend $5 million this year on this particular like ad placement. Um, it's like, what, like, how do you know if it works? You always do experiments. I, I mean, for, for context, I used to, uh, run as product at, at Instagram and, you know, all of it's always about, uh, getting advertisers to experiment, you know, learn, learn that it works and then slowly ramp up over time. And, and projects in, in, in DeFi just don't really do that. And so with ribbon, they did, they did an experiment where they did 1% of the token supply. Um, to liquidity mine their faults, and then measure how retentive those newly gained users were. Was it just mercenary capital that you know took the uh, the RBN and farmed and dumped it and moved on, um, or were they actually sticky? And I think they found that you know some of the users were sticky, some of them were mercenary. But um, it's like doing that kind of um, you know e- experiment and analysis is actually really key to to having good growth and having having good good product insights. So not to
2: add a tiny shill, uh, but uh, one of the things that I think um, like Gauntlets second main product is, is actually this experimental design incentive optimization piece where you redesign the experiments and like basically run them for DAOs, um, for like, you know, how much should you spend? What, what is the retain? What are like the high level KPIs that you want, like, and tracking the different types of users and then being like, Hey, like this is, you know, this is your spend efficiency. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think to Tom's point, a lot of the stuff from web two and trading will sort of bleed into services like ours that try to do that for people.
1: I'd love to see, um, I had this a deal a while ago and I haven't seen anyone do it, but you, you know, if you think about um, something like like Facebook ads, right, um, in, in reality these days, it's almost all automated, right? You say, hey, I wanna achieve this outcome, here's my like break even, and then the machine just does its thing and determines the creative, it determines the placement, the people, the time. You're not actually selecting those things yourself. And I'll just see someone do something kind of like that, almost for liquidity mining, where it's like um, you know, you know, basically auto-tailoring the projected API based on what is like the minimum required API to create to like suck in sticky users and like look at what else is out there, you know, in real time to determine the issuance rate. Um, thank you for thank you for advertising our product. I feel like we're
0: just plugging gauntlet right now. <laughs> I, I agree with you. So so uh Mike and I have this uh one of our close friends is head of data analytics at like this big retailer. Tom, you were on the product side of, at uh Zero X and, and also on the ad side of Instagram. Is it a lot harder? I would assume it's a lot harder to get product deep product data on crypto protocol, like users inside of crypto protocols, than it was to get like deep product data on let's say Instagram users, for example?
1: Uh yes and no. Uh I mean I think once you're inside the company you know depending on the company um facebook has incredible you know um data infrastructure so you can get data on anything that you want and and you know stitch it together and, and sort of do any sort of analysis that you want um obviously in crypto you know the majority of the data is on chain but some of the important stuff is is off chain and so it's not going to be you know great um but it's gotten so much better in the past three or four years um i remember when i was zero x one of the first things i did when i joined was build out our very first data pipeline because you know, back in those days, and even still today, um, I think people who haven't worked in, in product don't really have great intuition, oftentimes around data, they report, like, cumulative metrics, or they don't know how to, like, you know, uh, segment correctly, or they not they don't know, like, what the actual, you know, right, right metric is, they don't look at things like, like, market share, as opposed to just looking at like absolute volume, churn. Um, like so, in crypto, no one likes reporting churn, which I find hilarious. Cause it's like the most, probably one of the most important metrics. I, but the thing is, I don't think it's intentional. I think a lot of them just don't know or have been trained on like, you know, how to sort of operationalize data. Um, and so I think in crypto, it's gotten a lot better. Like Dune, I think is in, in large part responsible for this. Um, you know, nowadays, unless you're not a real project, unless you have a Dune dashboard and the Dune dashboard is open and audible. It's not just. Take our word for it. You know, it's on some, some closed source website. Everybody can go in and inspect the data and and sort of uh, you know make sure that it looks correct. Um, so you know, I, I think every major chain, you know, there will be uh, some sort of employable uh, product for it.
0: Yeah, All right, I want to kind of dig, uh, get off tokenomics for a second and dig a little more into DeFi. Um, as someone who's not as deep into DeFi as you two are, but like knows enough to look at some of the data and like looking at the tvls and things like this it does feel like uh what happened is DeFi summer took off in summer of 2020 and it like created this massive DeFi industry and then the attention basically the attention shifted to like gaming and play to earn and axie and then obviously nfts had like boom and then came back down and then like another big boom and now nfts i mean like nfts still having their best month ever like board apes just hit 110 uh, floor 115 it's like completely bonkers uh, to me it feels like tier one DeFi has to make this comeback at some point like it has to feel like some of these things are undervalued um i'd like your guys to take on that
1: i mean yes i think i generally agree i think there is a, a tendency in crypto to go after the you know, shiny new thing, as we were talking about earlier, um, you know, I'd rather fork and launch my own protocol on Avalanche rather than, you know, trying to, you know, improve the value of Compound by, you know, 20, 30% or whatever. So there, there's, a, there's a component of that in retail investing as well. Where people want to find the low cap gems as opposed to, you know, buying something like Compound or Uniswap that has, you know, real usage. Um, I think there was also just a move to sort of like second order DeFi over the past year or so, um, where, you know, derivatives really took off, things like Option Vault really took off. Um, I think um you know uh, those kind of things were capture more of the attention versus uh, your improvements to some of the sort of core primitives that we saw in like 2020. so um I don't necessarily know if it was if I was dead as opposed to like um there's being a shift to sort of the next stage in the market um so I think these things you know will come back and and like I said the usage is still incredible um, but I think just um you know naturally retail investor taste has shifted a little bit um and I think entrepreneurs are as well are looking for. Sort of the next big thing and not just trying to uh you know make incremental improvements to existing products
2: uh n- never forget the king i guess you know maker is is up like almost 25 percent this week or something like that so to, yeah. to to your point i i think there is kind of this like a little bit more flight to quote cool. like like maker didn't take a as anywhere near a big a hit as the rest of the market um and part of that is like showing its resilience um in a yeah. time where everyone else kind of had like lots of issues.
0: Yeah. I feel like maker's uh, coming back into the fold a little bit. Maybe was, I'm biased because uh, Ben Foreman from Parify just came on. I, I have a question actually about just how DeFi performs in a bear market. Um, bull case, like I'm looking at the Uniswap chart right now and Uniswap's down from, it was 44 bucks in May of last year. Now it's down to trading at like 10 or 11, right? So it's down decent chunk off its highs. Uh, bull case for, um, in a bear market, the bull case is that like Uniswap and Compound and Maker, these things actually generate cash flows, right? So they become really attractive, especially as kind of the institutional side of things moves into DeFi. These things are spitting off cash flows. You can almost make like sexy little models off of them that the traditional folks like. So that's like the bull case. The bear case is that the cash flow is denominated in their native token. So the earnings power actually goes down as the market continues going down. Um, and also just like they're really easy to be copied, right? Like you can fork them and put them on an L1 that like has more attention on it, or there's maybe like more rewards to be earned in like gaming or play to earn right now. So what is your kind of, what is your opinion on
1: on how DeFi performs in a bear market? I think things that inherently have a assumption that there's gonna be a strong demand for leverage um, will have issues. I think, you know, you say maker, and I, I think, obviously now Maker is very large. They're diversifying their their collateral. They're adding real-world assets. Like, they're trying to be, you know, uh, like the global central bank um, and be able to, uh, you know, onboard any sort of asset. But implicit in there is the idea that people are willing to, uh, you know, take out loans against um, different types of assets, oftentimes for leverage, maybe most of the times for leverage. And I think, um, you know, those rates will probably compress um, over time as people are, are less inclined to, to, to do so um i think also stuff that um you know there, there's some products that um look more like index funds and there's some things like Yearn, right which is also sort of inherently based on asset prices being high and they're being yield to sort of farm um those flows are also probably going to go go down over time as well um and so i think um you, you know you sort of look at your favorite protocol and say well like does the price of this asset need to keep going up for this thing to work, and it, those are the things that are that are not going to do do super well. Um, or do interest rates need to be high? Um, it, it's sort of another uh, you know bellwether of of potential issues in, in a bear market.
2: Yeah, I I think one one thing to separate is um, protocols that actually earn revenue in stablecoins and ETH, uh, like you know interest rates that are paid in a in compound and interest rates in Aave. Uniswap's a little bit of a weird case because you know, a the fees don't really go to token holders per se, uh, and you know it's it's a lot more complicated probably for them from a logistical, legal, whatever jujitsu standpoint to actually get the cash flows to token holders. But I do think an interesting thing that's sort of the dual and of the sort of uh, hey how how do we like automatically figure out what the incentive spend should be is how do we make sure these protocols can actually update how they can collect revenue and redistribute revenue and i think like that's something that will be a very big area potentially for a protocol that does that for other protocols but i think we're a little far from 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 that design wise um but a something that sort of manages like helps helps protocols manage their revenue and and realize these kind of like real cash flows which are like stablecoin and eth and Payments. Um and then also, you know, one of the biggest things that you know I've been thinking a lot about at various points and have been trying to find someone good to incubate this is like a and pro- MA protocol. So like you could imagine that in, in a bear market, like something that will ha- we already are seen some of these, right? Like, but they're very manual, right? Like the Ferrari merger was this extremely manual process. Um it you know like there wasn't there the 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 way the price was determined was not like a market slash competition price it was just like people put out a price then governance voted then people put and it was like very inefficient, and also then they had to just go manually do the token swap of like go to the rari treasury and send it to Fed. it there's so many moving parts that it just like looks like investment banking, but in crypto you could actually automate a lot of that and make some type of like auction process where both sides um of uh you know the the two merging parties kind of can like the the token holders can kind of like compete in some way to figure out what the merge price is you can automate like the merging of governance right like we've kind of come to this shelling point in a lot of ways on like the compound governance contract in ethereum or like i think in 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 solana it seems like it'll be tribeca dao um which I don't understand why this is called Tribeca but whatever. Because uh, none of them, none of the people working on it live in New York, so I was like, what? <laughs> but uh, <laughs> it's kind of weird. Uh, but the um, the the upshot of this is that, like, I think if we have standardized governance layers that, like, people kind of use as a shelling point, the same way people just copy Uni v three and copy Compound and Aave, uh, I think we can start thinking a little bit higher of like hey how do we make a protocol that automates like what an investment bank would do right and like Ferrari showed us like hey you can you can do it it's just like you know right now no one's bothered building the tools but i think that will be a big thing in a bear market is like tools that do these types of stuff like ma- management
0: like fully on-chain crypto native investment banks that focus entirely on like a like a protocol MA and b protocol financing
2: like that well, kind of? yes but but i think it won't be like an inve- like Investment banks make their profit from bundling all these things and forcing you to buy everything, right? right. I actually think in DeFi, un- the unbundling of the investment bank and like having a protocol that does like one function and you can glue them together with composability however you want will be the way that mm-hmm. like this stuff gets done.
0: Like a protocol that does like financing for, DAO- for DAOs or and then like there's another protocol that does like g- g- mer- mergers for DAOs or something something like that. Exactly. Again.
1: Okay. I'm I'm really bullish on uh teams that are doing bond issuances for DAOs, um, like naturally, this is not super attractive in a bull market when you have an incredible treasury and you're better off just selling tokens, but nobody wants to sell their tokens at the bottom. And so you're much better off you know, tapping the capital markets. Maybe your, your treasury is much smaller than it was as well. Um, and so there's a couple of teams that are working on um, busy helping you know DAOs get access to working capital without having to to sell. And I think those are also going to be uh, you know, doing super well um, in, in the bull market when teams need to grow and, and finance and, and maybe buy stuff up cheap.
0: I'm just gonna say in general, it feels like like not even just DAOs, not even like DeFi native companies. In general, I think crypto companies can do a better job of uh, getting access to non-dilutive capital. Centralized, CeFi companies, DeFi companies as well. Um, it, it feels like that space is like ripe to grow in, in, in crypto. One thing I wanna dig into is just like DAO to DAO services a little bit more like, let's say Blockworks right now makes money in a couple different ways, but one is like sponsorships. And the way that like our to- the total addressable market of like crypto sponsorship dollars is growing, right? Because companies like our clients, like they used to raise $10 million. Now they raise $500 million. And like some of those dollars go to uh, product and engineering and some go to marketing and like Blockworks eat some of the marketing dollars to help these companies acquire users. And like, that's kind of our business model. But when I look at some of the DAOs, they've got like $8 billion in their treasury or like $4 billion in their treasury. And it feels like nobody's servicing these folks and nobody's like looking at that chunk of money and being like, holy shit, there's $5 billion in the treasury.
2: I I just think it's like right now, the products that DAOs can convince all their token holders to spend on are extremely niche and very related to management of the protocols themselves, right? But to Tom's point, if there's more DAO tooling than like DAOs could spend on marketing, and like stuff like that, right? Like right now, most of the DAOs that spend on marketing are very are, are like the the Gnosis Safe plus group chat type DAOs, right? Not like the real like actual governance proposal DAOs, right? And like, you know, Tom and I are both in Pleaser DAO, and pleaser DAO spends on marketing, they spend on a ton of other stuff. But that's very manual, right? There's like five people on the multisig who determine how they get spent. And I think like the more we can bridge the gap between constitution DAO, group chat plus multi-sig and like, you know, actual governance, on-chain governance contract, uh, the more you can spend on things that aren't just core protocol development auditing effectively.
0: Yeah. It was funny. So we have this big conference coming up, permissionless, Tom speaking, uh, Tarun, you should get involved. But like we, our thesis originally was like a lot of these crypto, a lot of the DAOs are going to want to get involved. Right. And. We look at the when you look at the companies on the website that are sponsoring it's like coinbase one inch fireblocks ledger metamask nansen like it was really tough for us to sell into the dows because there's like all this Usually, like what we do is like we jump on the phone with like the chief marketing officer of Coinbase or like the CMO of Fireblocks and like we talk through a deal and we figure out something that works and we, and we sign the deal. It takes like a couple weeks or something. To, with these DAOs, it was like, two, you know, we tried to pitch like the Uniswap DAOs, like 2,000 people voting on it and they're like, yeah. there are VIP tickets involved. Like, we don't want VIP. Like, no, we're it's for the people. I'm like, oh, oh my God. am like, all right, guys, back out, back out of the Discord. So it's just, yeah. it's interesting.
1: I think maker in some respects is, is further ahead in, in governance here, um, yeah. than a lot of other DAOs in that, you know, they segment budgets by, um, core group or I forget what they actually call them, like module. So it's like, oh, Working instead groups, of, yeah. yeah. They did
2: just inst- fire the marketing team though. That, and that was like a the big content controversy. Team. content team. Yes, yeah, it's a content more game, so. in,
1: in, in concept of basically having budgets for these different functions and letting people um unilaterally decide how to to spend them once they're approved instead of having the DAO uh, manually approve every single decision or every single budget which looks more like how a company functions right like not every single uh, budget line item goes to the board to vote um it's you you hire executives and those executives hire executives and those executives hire ic's to decide how to spend the money and you can move, move a lot faster but with will with still sort of retaining this this oversight and and function of of token holders for example
0: like DAOs, the I think the, I think people are getting DAOs like a little bit wrong, and like honestly, who am I to say this? But like DAOs, it feels like right now they're like oh DAOs, like the entire community is going to vote. But like when I think about again, I'll just take it back to Blockworks. Like if we had to vo- if we had to have the entire company vote on every single decision we made, like I can guarantee you there'd be no Blockworks right now, um, and I think a lot of companies would say the same thing. So when I hear like DAOs and like, wh- I'm trying to think about like, what is the real value prop of DAOs? I'm starting to think that it's not the
2: governance of DAOs actually, but just like one of the may- many reasons is like international like labor and capital laws would basically be like, this is not a company. Like, why do you have people from like five different countries like working on the one entity? I prefer to think of DAOs as like a way of removing nation state borders to companies, right? Because companies have a lot more in terms of like nation state borders right it's like the company is in a country can only hire people who are legally allowed in that country can only make payments in a certain way can only issue equity if you have xyz status and dow's remove that right so but like the fact that they're they're going to do the same things as companies is kind of this red herring it's more the fact that they can kind of remove this border this bordering aspect of company
0: I, I i completely agree with you turn
2: yeah like in my mind DAOs are just
0: an evolution of like corporate structure built for a a remote world and B a totally global like international world and then also see like they like in the founder seat like it's a Pain in the ass to issue equity. It's really, really difficult and really hard. Um, and there's like all these like uh, 18 different types of equity, and like it's really complicated. But DAOs just kind of a they make it's like corporate structure for the remote world, international world, global world. But also it makes it much simpler to issue equity, which I think is a big value add.
1: I think the the um, DAOs are flat governance structure and you know pure you know democratic vote lays like kind of a straw man the same way like. You know every single layer of the stack needs to be decentralized and you need to like compile from source like is, is also a straw man like um it, it's it's simply you know sort of a, like a a clay that people then use to build into whatever it is that they want it has some nice properties to it but it's there's nothing inherent about that about um you know, how you actually want to run your DAO or or how it should be structured there there's a sort of this you know there's this natural like tendency to like these
2: hierarchical structures right but the difference is in the Industrial Revolution, it started with like 100% centralized at the top power, right? Like the barons of the Industrial Revolution would just tell people what to do. It was less structured. And in, in, in decentralized land, it's like absolutely no structure, everyone votes, right? But they're both kind of converging to the same sort of like natural equilibrium of like hierarchy, structure, groups, like assignment of budgets, whatever. And I think the interesting thing we saw from the Industrial Revolution to now that there was this whole set of b2b companies and services built like for handling your registration in other countries for dealing with labor laws for like payroll for dot 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 dot, dot right like this whole and all of that stuff makes it possible to even like run a company uh in 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 many places and so i think basically yeah. you're going to see the same thing except it's going to go the other way of like how do we add in you know this like structured control Versus like, how do we remove structured control, right? Like in the the industrial revolution thing, it was more like, how do we remove it and outsource it and slowly like break things up? And here it's sort of like bottoms up, right? It's like top down and bottoms up and they're going to meet in the middle at the same hierarchical tree structure. That's maybe that's like a weird version of history, but like, that would be kind of how I would.
1: That's good. There's, there's a, there's a good book about this, but like, I think it's just the company, um, it's about like the history of, of joint stock corporations. Yeah. Um, and, uh, DAOs are just, you know, speed running this. So,
0: but like, so, so tying back to that book then, Tom, like, I, th- I think the, uh, like C-Corps or something, I think it was either C-Corps or, or LLCs. One of those was created because like you needed to basically fund the building of railroads or something, something of that sort. And, but yeah. you couldn't go raise a bunch of money, uh, because the investors didn't want to be held liable. So then you had to create like the LLC because, uh, investors didn't want to be held liable, but they still wanted to invest. And like the creation of the LLC or maybe it was the creation of the C Corp, I forget. I think it was the LLC, and enabled you to then be able to, to raise a lot more money, which allowed you to fund things like the railroad boom. Let me extend this analogy 150 years forward. Like, when you think about DAOs, what can get built because we have DAOs that can't get built now in the same way that you couldn't build railroads because you couldn't fund the railroads without this corporate structure, but then you could once you had the corporate structure.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think part part of when I think about DAOs, I think it is about... Um, the fact that so much of our our lives and digital economy or economy economies moved digitally and be, be, become sort of internet native and in that scenario it is truly a, a borderless global system and so having a single corporate entity in a single um, um, jurisdiction probably doesn't make a lot of sense and we're already experiencing this you know right right now right like people are working in many different locales maybe for a you know Delaware court but it's not really like representative of, of, you know, going into an office every day and like, you know, be being headquartered in a single location. And I think DAOs are, are similar in many ways where for a lot of these, you know, internet native platforms and businesses, it doesn't make sense to have a LLC somewhere that, or a C-Corp that owns the thing or that is governing the thing. The thing. And, and, and so it's like, it's, it's almost sort of like a square peg in, in a round hole where, um, it just doesn't naturally sort of fit, you know, the, the substrate of, of like you know, web three to have some entity actually own and control the thing, um, but also has this sort of um, superpower in that it does do um, you know global capital formation. Um, it does do um, you know pure fractionalized ownership that's you know liquid and could be could be used for many other things. And I, I think all those sort of things that that people like about um, you know uh, joint stock corporations. DAOs sort of do on on steroids. It's sort of like the purest expression of it. Um, You don't have to go through Carta, which is like this, you know, it's sort of, Carta is sort of like for joint stock corporations, what Plaid is for like crypto, where it's like this sort of janky hack that like we built on on top of the old, creaky old system to emulate what we actually want, which is like a digitally native version of it. And and DAOs just sort of delivers that. Um, So that's kind of how how I think about it.
2: And, And maybe to come full circle to the thing we were talking about earlier, uh where we're talking about like hey the investment banking services for DAOs. Um you know for the the kind of joint stock corporation you needed the investment bank because it was the only way to kind of like manage, you know, you could view them as the original sort of corporate services company. Um and in that case bundling things became more important because the cost of doing a transaction like legally was just enormous, right? But in DeFi, in a lot of ways, for DAOs, the legal costs are actually extremely n- not like setup costs. I mean, like the legal cost of like doing the transaction on chain is extremely low, right? In the sense that like the execution of the smart contract is relatively cheap, much cheaper than like lawyers trying to structure things or investment bankers trying to structure things. And so the interesting thing is like as we get to the more hierarchical DAO world. I expect that we are going to see like the unbundled investment bank. It's not going to be the bundle. It's going to be very much unbundled. And like, that's, that's like a kind of evolution in capitalism that these kind of services are getting unbundled all at once.
1: Yeah. I think there's a history of digital services moving towards, um, being flat, being self-serve, being automated and th- that hasn't really happened. But I, th- I think DeFi is, is sort of, you know, that happening for financial services.
0: Yeah. All right, I want to wrap it up with uh, one question about like real world applications. Um, when I like look back at crypto and kind of what we've built, it's like just much better financial system. Oh, well, I mean, now it's like not not fully yet, but like we will have this much better financial system. And like there's really cool stuff happening with gaming. Um, um, but what we don't have is like a real like kind of those 2017 projects. If you remember, it was like you know, decentralized like Facebook and like a decentralized Instagram, like social media on the blockchain, and like all those hypey 2017 projects that never worked out. Um, when do you guys think we, when, like, if ever, do you guys think we see some of this like more real world, like a decentralized social media come out? And obviously it looks super different than like a, you're not just going to put Instagram on crypto rails, but when do we get something like that?
1: My, my, my bear case is I don't think we do. I don't think most of these products actually are solving a real problem. People care about censorship, but that's like a tail risk thing. You know, ninety nine point nine 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 percent of people on social media will will never experience censorship, and um, I think for for the most part, they don't. These products also just don't really put a good good enough thought into how do you build a great user experience, and then more importantly, how do you sort of you know uh, bootstrap this thing? How do you how do you sort of overcome the activation energy required to start using a new social network, which is like one of the, one of the purest network effects out there, and so um, I think just building decentralized twitter we've we have plenty of decent examples of it, and none of them have been able to solve this. Um, in my mind, this technology is sort of fun, fundamentally fundamentally a you know financial technology, and I think that's why we have seen sort of the proliferation of different you know types of of financial services and things uh, you know be successful first. And so I think if any of these things become successful, it's going to be through that lens like. I would argue, you know, BitClout was the most successful decentralized Twitter out there so far, even though it has not really had breakout growth because it, it sort of bundled speculation and, and financial uh, uh, you know, primitives um, in with it, or, or Axie for that matter, in the, in the realm of decentralized gaming. So unless you aren't, unless you're going to financial, uh, financialize it, um, I don't really see a good way for, for these things to actually get, get traction because I think the core fundamental value prop of it's decentralized is it's just not attractive for the vast, vast majority of users. I
2: just... This gets back to our user retention piece, which is like somehow when you add in the direct financial incentives, we have not figured out how to do user retention, right? Like it, it really does attract mercenary behavior. But the problem is like, you don't want social media to be like playing online poker, right? In some ways, like if it, the the moment people have too much adverse selection, they all get... They all leave and they're, you know, these like social network nft bootstrap things are just they feel like this complicated rube goldberg machine that's like impossible for any single individual to understand
0: yeah i guess the counter there maybe counter to tom my counter there would be like one thing that i think we will end up getting that hasn't taken off yet is social tokens like i would Hmm. i don't i don't care what the format is or i don't care what we call them but like i would like the ability to speculate on people because there's this thing that happens where it's like you know you're with your friends or something and you're like oh my god i found this i found this instagram account early or something um like or i found this uh i found this spotify artist when they only had when they only had seven thousand like listens on spotify and people love that right they love hmm. showing off that they had that and like that use case right there has to will, will get financialized because
2: people love it so much Buy the NFT
1: early enough, and then show
2: people the EtherScan link.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I agree. I I think that's kind of my my point, which is like that's why BitClout was the most successful of of this category because it had that built into it. Now, granted, I don't think the execution was very good, and there's a lot of other issues. But I think something like that is probably going to be required for this thing for this category to take off.
0: Guys, this has been awesome. Tarun and Tom are both on uh, on Twitter. Tom's at Dragonfly again. You guys can go to Dragonfly's website; pretty easy to find. Tarun runs Gauntlet. Um, again pretty easy to find google like gauntlet network or gauntlet crypto and i'm sure you can find it so tom taroon thanks again guys
1: cool. thanks jason
2: thanks